Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome once again to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. Well, four that they would preserve because they cherish them, and one that they regret and would like to see buried in the ground so that they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the actor Michael Maloney. If you're not sure where you've seen Michael before, let me list some of his acting credits since he started in 1979 playing Peter Telford in the series Telford's Change. He's been in Ordeal by Innocence, Minder, the miniseries Last Place on Earth, Scoop, the films Henry V and Hamlet with Kenneth Branagh, and the film Truly Madly Deeply with Juliet Stevenson and Alan Rickman. He was in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Othello, Macbeth, uh, he was Bob Cratchit in the TV movie A Christmas Carol. He's been in Magic Grandad, In Deep, The Jury, Believe Nothing. He was Malvolio in Twelfth Night, Thomas Cranmer in Henry VIII, Cassius in the miniseries Empire. He's been in Rosemary and Time, Lewis, The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep, Marple, Hotel Babylon, New Tricks, Spooks, Notes on a Scandal with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett, Victoria, Wire in the Blood, Walking the Dead, Bone Kickers, DCI Banks, Death in Paradise, Coronation Street, The Thick of It, Father Brown, New Worlds, Mr. Selfridge, Midsummer Murders, and Silent Witness. And that's just some of his film and TV work. Not to mention his theatre work. Actually, he's recently become very good at playing real people. He was Viscount Astor in The Trial of Christine Keeler and Edward Heath in The Crown. You see, you may not be able to remember where you've seen Michael Maloney, but you definitely have. So let's find out what Michael would choose to put in his time capsule. 
Michael Maloney. Hello there. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to your kitchen. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Tremendous acoustic. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely to have you here yeah. on uh, my time capsule. And you've gathered together five things for us. So. I was aware this morning, I was walking the dog, and uh, my, my one observation was that I've had some really tremendous moments in my life. And I also noted that they were probably just little light bits in between a sort of a conveyor belt of dirge. <laughs> so and so I've, I've got that sort of attitude behind everything, really. But um, I suppose the first thing I can remember uh, was having quite a nice life at a theatre school at the age of two and a half. And that was all quite exciting. And I did a term there, and it was very good. And I was in a Smarties advert directed by a promising director called Richard Lester. Oh, yeah. And it was very, very exciting. I used to come back with pockets crammed full of Smarties and down my socks and everything. It was wonderful. I was two and a half, three and a half by then, probably. Oh. Um, so you didn't realise that you were also being paid? I didn't realise I was being paid seven pounds no a day. No idea what that was. Seven pounds a day. No, it was just Smarties, and I didn't have to go to school. Anyway... I did this first term and I got lots of stars, you know, 24 stars, which was very good. But I did remember in the back of my mind, I, I can't keep this up, this is awful. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm behaving in a way that gets me lots of stars, but it's just, you know, no. So the next term uh, was just, uh, you know, as we were getting our little shoes on to go home, the teacher would go, Mrs Maloney, uh, without fail every day, and she'd be brought in for a check because I'd done something terrible. And I did say to her at the end of that first term, look, I know everything now, you don't have to send me back. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> I've absolutely got it. That's enough. That's enough. But no, we had to go to school. We had to go to school for a long time. Uh, forever. Uh, forever. And it certainly seemed like forever. Yeah. And uh, anyway, but at, anyway, at five, my dad was in the Air Force and we moved from Teddington to Singapore. And that's the first memory, really. So you go from South London. Mm really great and you know you've got a bushy park and you've got little school and you've got your mates and you go to birthday parties and you walk the dogs and suddenly you go to the far east and you live in a, a little bit of England because all these there is air force camps and army camps all the way across Singapore and Malaya but as a child a five-year-old child you have no idea why they're there so you are relieved of any responsibility of any or any accountability you're just existing and what happened to me was I started to exist in the tropics mm. from Teddington <laughs> within 24 hours so my main influences were Chinese Taoist and Buddhist temples and Hinduism and the two communities of China and India present uh, very much in Singapore, and to a certain a major extent in Malaya as well, but also there were Malaysians as well. So, but that was an exotic country, funnily enough, uh, for eight miles away, uh, and Singapore it was. And there I was on this RAF camp where it was too hot to go to school in the afternoon. So we go from nine till twelve every day working at school, and then in the afternoon go to the beach or go swimming or in the monsoons go tadpoling uh, and have this fantastically safe childhood, extraordinary childhood. And then at weekends, there would be boats that would take you to all the little archipelago, all the little islands around Singapore, of which there were many. There was one called Temple Island, which was a Buddhist temple on an almost perfectly round rock, just completely slotted on top, perfectly built. Or... Shell Island, which was just covered in shells, cowrie shells, which were extraordinarily shiny shells and, and beautiful, beautiful, extraordinary clam shells or what have you. Why do they call it Shell Island? I can't remember now. No, no, no. no. Okay. But anyway, I bought some something called shells back in my pocket, and they were lovely. And I still have them in a box somewhere. 
Um, and so this was a really extraordinary time. My mum, who had been to the Royal Ballet School and was a member of the Sadler's Wells Ballet Company, got asthma, couldn't move any further, went to Lambda and learned elocution in order, I suppose, to control her breath. Mm-hmm. She had her own dance school on this Air Force camp. So I went to dance school every week, uh, along with all the girls. How long were you there? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Five to seven and a half. Wow. Absolutely. Vivid. Vivid. Because you go from sort of, um, uh, I suppose, the the most striking colour, really, I can remember before that, was green. You know, Mm. green park, green grass. And then you go to the tropics where everything blossoms or shoots up in the space of seven days. Yes. If you cut yourself, it's, it's you know, vivid. And, you know, and it, it sort of has terrible sort of complications. <laughs> it's all, but it's all fast track and it's all uh, amplified. Everything's amplified. So you, <laughs> your father in the forces, but your mother, you say, Royal Ballet. Well, Royal Ballet, and she married my dad and moved out with him mm. to Singapore, as you did. And well, as they did. As they did. Yes, it doesn't happen so much now. And, uh, and she started this company, this ballet company, and uh, that went very well, and it disbanded the moment that we were posted back to England, of, of course. course. But the one thing I can remember really vividly was not so much anything to do with me, but witnessing a festival that's unique to Singapore, and it's a Hindu festival, which is called Taipuzan, which is uh, usually, I noticed all the, the people taking part in the ceremony were young men, and they were uh, usually representing their family, who had undergone an experience in that past 12 months. A mother had been extremely ill and had been brought back, or their children were extremely ill, or their father had a terrible, terrible court case, uh, which was a miscarriage of justice, but it impaired his health. And they were brought back to recovery, and in order to give thanks, these young men would ritually walk the walk and they would have a cage built around them fixed at the waist so it was like a half sphere right over your head and it consisted of six different bands going round Mm. as if it was sort of you know sort of a cage and through which these bands were little perforations through which you stuck spears very thin spears the width of knitting needles sharp spikes on the end which you then inserted into the body and hooked oh my onto the skin. So they were covered. I, I, and you can probably Google this or YouTube it, and you can see it. Uh, Taipuzan, it's unique as far as I can make out to Singapore. And it is to give thanks for, to pay back the gods or to pay back the universe for something that they have prayed for to come to fruition. So you suffer pain in order to you pay them You suffer back. pain and they were, they were, so they were full of lots of little knitting needle uh, sort of hooks. And they would walk through the streets of Singapore. Um, quite That's a few miles. Yeah, miles. And you witnessed this? As I, well. w- I watched it as a kid. It was the last thing I watched before we left in the week before. And that was the only time I went. I could have gone through on three occasions. It's an annual event. You're only seven and a half. Seven and a half. Seven and a half. But by this time, you see, I'd seen everything. I'd seen people dying. I'd seen, um, in fact, the dogs and cats that we had were dogs that I had picked up off the middle of the road where they'd been thrown in a bag to be run over, you know, or abandoned on an island. Mm. I'd seen sort of all creation come and go and been quite upset by it. Weirdly, not traumatised, but really, really upset, as far as I can make out. And so this was the last thing I'd seen, and it wasn't akin to watching a television documentary. I was there, Mm. it was real, but it was something that people did, and okay, I'll accept that. And uh, 
they were, I heard someone say this to me, oh yeah, they're on drugs. Well, I didn't know what that meant. But one man panicked. One young man panicked and started screaming, oh, oh, and they went straight in there and they had a bowl with a, an incense in it and right under his nose and were wafting this up his nose. And then they gave him a little slap on the side of his face and he made no reaction. And then he could walk with the spikes and the spears right. so maybe through they were. the street. So they, I think they would have to go into an altered state yeah. rather than a pain-killing anaesthetic. You know what I mean? They had to transcend what was being given them, which again was a part of the spiritual practice. Mm. And all this I'm recounting to you as a seven-year-old that has made sense of it without ever having researched it. So I may be completely wrong as to why they did it yes. or the process, but that's what I saw. And they were painted. They were painted uh, different colours, uh, mainly uh, a lot of white, and they had this, and uh, they had the families in full ceremonial dress, special occasion dress, walking through the streets. This is a full memory. Complete memory. And I remember it was called Taipuzan, and I do know that that exists. Mm. And I have seen one image, so I know I wasn't imagining it. I've seen an image on Google. I didn't bother to go any further. I went, yeah, that's it, yeah. Have you been affected, or were you affected at the time, by that religious zeal? Or... No, that was what was going on. That was part of the landscape. And this was a culmination, if you like, of two and a half years of this kind of ceremony. I suppose, really, people are learning through image and sculpture, I noticed a lot. So if you went to an Indian temple, went to a Hindu temple in Singapore, there were scenes of quite some violence. And there was a, a, there was a special sort of, if you like, sort of iconic gardens called the Tiger Balm Gardens, the Tiger Balm Gardens. And in there were little scenarios, little sort of little sculptures of people being savaged by sharks <laughs> at sea or falling off a cliff or um, being killed by a tiger or people at war. And, uh, and in no uncertain terms, you saw dismemberment and look of horror on surviving people or family. So what you're getting is very vivid images and television arrived while we were there. And in the afternoon, you would see some very scary supernatural Chinese movies, which later, I suppose, became Kung Fu. Kung yes. Fu movies or martial arts movies. But these ones were black and white. They predated all the Golden Harvest and Run Run Shaw Brothers films from Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And they were always woven with uh, the supernatural and people flying above the rooftops and then raising their hand, looking at the moon. Before you knew it, you had a crack down the forehead with blood coming down and people screaming. And they don't hold back on screaming as well, you know. So you get sound and vision, the like of which you're not going to find in Teddington High Street. No. You know, and in a very short amount of time. And you're no. also subjected to various tropical illnesses when you start, so it's all a delirium. <laughs> so it's a, it was extraordinary. And That's I a, had all a that. vivid time. Yeah. And, and then you come back to the two Ronnies. The two Ronnies, the two Ronnies, actually Sunday Night at the Palladium, I think, was the first show, which was pretty good, actually. I did enjoy it. But you also came back to trauma yes. because that wasn't traumatic. What was traumatic was my education. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. You're going to move house every 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. So one of the simple solutions is to go to a boarding school. And the Air Force at this point paid for at least two-thirds of your education. Yes. So it wasn't going to kill you. And it was the logical conclusion. So from the age of seven and a half, Every when you came back, they said it's probably best if you go to a boarding school. You go to boarding school. Wow. And that was the trauma. Uh, because there you go to an establishment where 
nobody loves you. Truly nobody loves you. You are not a member of a family anymore. Mm. But you are hit with a stick. And you are made to pray to God for forgiveness for being a bad person. Even though what you might have done would have been uh, talked after the bell Mm -hmm. at supper. Or, could I borrow your hymn book in the chapel? No. No one said you could talk, mm. you know. And or you laughed at a joke. Laughed at a God joke. God forbid. Absolutely. Any spirit, you know, mm. anybody's high spirit. And I was, I used to be beaten with a broken billiard cue or a pool cue, as most people would refer Good to it. God. Uh, and, uh, and that hurt. And then you'd have to say thank you. Um, and as I say, no one loved you. And there were 140 of us between the age of seven and 13. And it must be quite an uncontrollable body of people. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of screaming, and a lot of shouting, and no one to turn to for reassurance, just for someone to say, listen, honestly, that's right. we've got to get you to shut up in some way. Don't worry about it. He's just shouting. This was real. That was more real than the Taipuzan that sure. I saw three months earlier. I'm sure. Yeah. Or, you know. Well, I'm going to definitely take the vivid... Let's go vivid. Let's go. Let's I'm go going to check the vivid. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the image of you collecting shells on Shell Island. Oh, yes. Would I that bring everything back to Absolutely. You? What was she? Yeah, no, absolutely. This ceremony is extraordinary, but yeah. I really don't want to put that into the time capsule. No, And okay. for you to have to look at that again. No. I think you're not going to forget that. No, no, you're definitely so I'm not going to go. If we're going to go for something happy, then absolutely. I, I think you collecting shells on Shell Island. Shell Island, absolutely. You put yeah. that on there. And you but, can't but I have to say that well, I, think, I can't think of anything more awful and a poor little seven-year-old child who's had this <laughs> wonderful, vivid time. Yes, yes. Uh, being sent to these places. It's extraordinary that these places were allowed to set up. Still going. And then, uh, still going. Still going. I started in 1965 mm. in one of those establishments. And uh, there was still a British Empire, very much a British Empire. And we were, now in retrospect, we were being trained to run that empire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, that means that you have the sensitivity, potentially, to be beaten out of you. Uh, You have the compassion to be beaten out of you Mm -hmm. uh, so that you can take life at the drop of a hat in future in foreign countries. Yes. It's it's, it's as simple as that. And feel no qualms about applying the same punishment to the people who deserve it abroad. Absolutely, queen and country. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's how it works. Of course, by... 1970, there wasn't that much, and and in the following, but 70 to 75 especially, there was even less of an empire, Mm. and then you're left with probably 400,000 people with psychosis walking around. What am I going to do? Walking around England, running the country. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't think. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but I mean, I I look. I had to play Edward Heath recently uh, for the Crown, and he was just a young man who was taken into the war. Mm. You know, and had seen the lot and gone, right, well, the decisions have to be made. Yes. And that's how, how they learned to make decisions was through traumatic violence mm. in the interests of self-preservation, collective self-preservation. It's hard to explain to people the world of, of corporal punishment, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there are many people who would bring it back. Oh, yeah. I think quite often people who didn't experience it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, you won't do it again. Although they were, they were full of wonder at people who it did not affect. It didn't mm. seem to hurt them. No. And they were carrying on doing it. And they found it funny. Badge of pride almost. Yeah. But some kids were terrified, absolutely terrified, lived within the shadow of the stick. Yes. You know. And, were you and, one of those? Yeah, I was one of those. Mm. One of those. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. quite something, isn't it? And I, I met a long time, long time later, I met a boy uh, who I was at an older school with, and we were both in our 20s. And, th- and uh, he had had five nervous breakdowns and was a tube train evangelist. 
So he'd go up and down the northern line preaching, you know, the merits Salvation. of Jesus Christ, our Lord, mm. you know, ready to go at any moment, ready to collapse at any moment. Oh, you know what I mean? Lord. Yeah, so yeah. did you suggest perhaps putting a cage around yourself and lots of knitting needles? I, honestly, I said, try this. Try this. Try this. Works. Come round my house. I've got something you can sniff. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. poor man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's quite extraordinary. And it's about being isolated mm. from love and then refashioned. Mm. You know. It's funny that people still persist in sending their children to schools like that, even if they had a terribly traumatic time there themselves. There must be something. It must be uh, along the lines of, I won more than I lost by having this experience. Yes. And look at me now, I'm a doctor. And I live in a yes. very large house and I've got exactly. lots of money. Exactly. And that's what I want for my child. That's right. So the question of happiness yes. is not as important as wealth and a large house exactly. and good holidays. We're going to be okay. Uh, also, they must, they must forget. They must put it so far down that it governs them, it runs them to a certain extent. But what comes out, again, is more beneficial than negative, Yes, I think. Yeah. But it's all there. I don't quite understand. Were there any it. particular teachers at your school that you really loathed, or were they just all loathsome? No, they weren't all loathsome. No. There were incredibly inspiring teachers, really inspiring teachers. Always the English and drama teachers. They were very, uh, really, uh, very encouraging, or whatever it is they had to say, I could take to. Mm. So that's all right. But the the other stuff, the gatekeepers, if you like, were pretty scary. Mm. Pretty scary. But there was, you know, there was a. a a PT teacher who'd been at the Battle of the River Plate, uh, you know, in the Navy, and he was, wasn't was sure of giving you a, a major clip round the ear, mm. usually with a bunch of keys stuck in the palm of the hands. It, whoa, like that. But he was probably the most liked because there was something about it. it was so, weirdly, by then, by the time I graduated at 13 from that experience, there was something completely understandable about what he was doing. Yes. It was the ones that were conducting sort of psychological... Uh, shaming, mm. if you like, for being what you were. Yes. And it wouldn't have to be too remarkable. It would just have to be um, something that strayed from the rules. Yes. And, you know, and there were kids, they, there were kids that were brought up into the front of everybody else at assembly and beaten, but beaten slowly mm. with jokes in between. Yes. And then the, depending, really depending on how secure you were, you were probably encouraged to laugh at this child being beaten. Of course. You know, it's a really odd stuff. Mm. Uh, most people, if I was to say, if I was to get a room full of, say, 20 people, contemporaries, from that thing, and do you remember when so-and-so had his trousers taken down and was beaten slowly and we all had to laugh? And some of them won't remember. And some of them won't have remembered until that point I reminded them. Really? Yeah, most of them might have been. And they pushed Gone. it so far Gone. down. Gone. Yes. It's not a milestone in their life, as far as they're concerned. But for you, that is, isn't it? It it, it is, and I think it really was brought home by having got divorced and worrying about our daughter and her being abandoned in much the same manner that I was, but in different circumstances. Mm. And then it brings the whole lot flooding. Yes, you re-evaluate your life. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So... That was that. I'm going to take that for you, Michael, because you deserve it. I feel for your poor little, even up to the age of 13. It's very good. It's but, very young, but I think we should definitely take that and, yes, just, and, and lock it away. Pocket, pocket away. Well, you see, the thing is that that really has determined that I, I'm uh, from the end of Singapore onwards, it's a dirge with good bits in ah, between. There we are. Uh, and that was from that conditioning, that five or six year conditioning at that age. Mm. And, you know, and my mum and dad coming down and I'm going, please take me away. And they're going, what are you talking about? Look, look, it's the, it's the South Downs, 
you know, it's beautiful. Look at the sea. Look at that. Look, mm. we've got you've got everything. You've, there's a swimming pool. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. Yes. Did you go home during the holidays? Or yeah, you? I went home during the holidays. Some kids wouldn't. Some kids, a lot of overseas kids, you see. So they would spend days walking around the school. Empty school. And there'd be, a, there'd be a table set for them in the evenings and have a bit of scoff. And, you know, they could do what they liked. But they were at school. Oh, my word. Yeah, some people would uh, would take them home, come and stay with us. Yeah. That kind of thing, you know. Yes. And during that period, of course, you'd have some great experiences. Like, we went on a cruise to Spain. Mum and Dad and me. How How wonderful. You know, I did very well in the school play. How exciting. I played really well and got my colours in rugby. Wow, I feel a sense of achievement. I got a scholarship to the next school. Wow, yeah. absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but always, if I, when I go on that Spanish trip, I'm going, yeah, but in two weeks' time, I have to go back to that place. You know, I'm in the school play. But on Monday, that French teacher will go, you were someone yesterday, Maloney, but you're nothing now. Yeah. And if you answered back, you'd be off down to the old broken billiard cue centre. <laughs> And uh, so uh, it was always something hanging over me. Mm. And so that's what made it not fun anymore. Anyway, 13 and then on to 16, where I did three schools in three years. By that time, just I made it impossible for me to continue. And eventually I left at 16. And it was ignominious. It wasn't rather remarkable. I wasn't expelled. It was just like, we can go no further. Mm. I promise you. Which broke my dad's heart. Because he had not that kind of education. His mum died of whooping cough when he was a few weeks old. He had whooping cough. He was shipped over from Ireland. He lived on a farm, worked on a farm all through his life, did okay, got to university, and we used to cycle past uh, Charterhouse Public School and go, that's the future. Yeah. As a future, joined the Air Force, was promoted got through it and went, you're going to these fantastic places. Yes. And so he felt he was giving you the opportunity to his dying he'd never day, had. Could never understand why I didn't like it. Could never understand. And of course, I couldn't articulate it. And even when I got to 16 years of age, I was still expressing myself as a seven and a half year old on that subject. Mm. I'm not a 16 year old. I couldn't say, but eventually I said, you've got to take me out. And he did. He took me out. That's it. That's very good. And so my, my next moment is that sense of peace which probably lasted a car journey hmm. from the school back to where I lived. Yeah. And it was just like, it's over. Yeah. I don't know what the future is, but there's no one waiting for me with a stick. And I could go towards what I really like, which maybe I'd like to be an actor. And this was, it was just a, a, a wonderful time. Because mm. my dad, worried my dad, because I had no future as far as he was concerned. Um, so it was a sense of peace where anything is possible, but I don't even have to worry about that. No. And that's quite rare. Yes. Quite rare to get a sense of peace with nothing shooting off in any direction. You know, it just is. So that was, that was joyous. Because you did even then have a sense that what you wanted to do was act. It became my ticket out. It became my ticket out of there. And uh, uh, there, was no, there were no outlets, really, that were, I was aware of where you go, well, yes, no, you can become an actor. It was always, it's a very tough profession. You know, it's one in a hundred gets a job or so, whatever it is, whatever the statistic was of the day, mm. you know, and that, that was banded about wherever you went. And, and the careers officers didn't know what to say. It was the thing I held on to, I don't care because one day I'll be an actor. Yes. That was the one that, get, that gets you out of town. 
I, I can picture your face on that car journey. Oh, we stopped it. I came from Yorkshire. We came from this this Starlag in Yorkshire, and we got as far as Grantham, and we bought a pound of sausages from the bushes in Grantham. <laughs> and I thought that was this is because I love those. They're very herby, very marvellous. So I knew I was going to have them in the evening with beans. Oh. And I believe also, it was the three day week. It was Edward Heath three day week. Perfect for three day week and, pa- and power it. cuts. And I can remember, oh, no, I can remember, oh, no, Leo Sayer, I won't let the show go on. I remember <sighs> hearing that on the road, Leo yeah, Sayer. I won't let the show go I won't let the show go on. I love that song. I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. Oh. And my worst song, I remember, being taken in another direction to the first school was... Um, in the 60s, so about 1968, that would have been, and someone singing, I think it's going to rain today. Oh. It's a very sad song. And you oh. thought, this really... They know I'm song, coming. They, they know I'm going back. <laughs> They're going back in. How could they possibly know that on the radio? <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. my God. <laughs> oh, I've got the Osea singing in the background. Oh, You're sitting on that seat that's in the back good. of your father's Morris Oxford. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, what was it? It was actually a Morris Traveller. Half-timbered car. Good guess. Shakespearean car. Lovely. Half-timbered. <laughs> yes, there you are, sitting in the back. Yeah. Leo Sayer playing on the radio. Leo Sayer, I wonder the show. Rain hitting the window, but your oh. face has got that. Oh, that it's all over. Almost a smirk. It's all over. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh. Fantastic. In it goes. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with you in a moment. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Michael Maloney would like to put into his time capsule. So that's three, isn't it? So then number four was something quite interesting. It was a bit tough, but I still see the stage manager around here, lives around here, called Chris Heron. Uh, my dad eventually moved to an Air Force base called RAF Abingdon outside mm-hmm. Oxford. Mm-hmm. And I got a job in the town at Howard de Wyndham's new theatre. 
the new theatre Oxford. And uh, I became a stagehand. I was what's known as third daemon. And for some reason, they believed that I had previous experience. Of course, I didn't. And uh, I just, I come as an acting ASM from a theatre called the Little Theatre in St. Martin's Lane, which is on the top. And uh, I just said, yeah, this person referred me to you. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, you, oh, you know it? Yeah, come on in. So I came in <laughs> and I was a daemon. I knew nothing about it, nothing about it. But there I was. And on the Monday morning at nine o'clock, all these pantechnicans turned up, these trucks, 14-ton trucks turned up, and we did what's known as the get-in, which mm. we get in all the equipment for a rock concert. And uh, this it's was... a big theatre, the new theatre. The big theatre, a 1,500-seater theatre. It's fantastic. It's got the biggest revolving stage in Great Britain, although they may have taken that away in the refurbs. Uh, it was an amazing place. They had a huge ramp from the, the get-in back door... It goes up, all the shutters go up. A huge ramp was put in in 1934 to allow the elephants to come in for the panto. <laughs> and it was still used to drag in all this, the stack, the stack of speakers, bring in the stack. And I had um, a granny coat on a fur coat with puff sleeves and clogs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I was part of the get-out, get-in. And, uh, and it was an up-and-coming group called Queen, and uh, we set up all their equipment, and in the evening, they did this concert. Mm. They did this concert, and it was a year before Bohemian Rhapsody. So they were really up and coming. And I was sweeping the stage and watching them do it, and, and they come in 40 minutes before the concert to do a sound check, and they worked out a song in that 40 minutes. No. Yeah, yeah, and I talked to someone, I said, do you see that? And I went, yeah, yeah, I reckon that's how it happens most of the time. Once you're on tour, you're coming up with stuff. The only time you actually meet and do anything is for the sound check, and they, they knock up another song. But knock up is, is, is an exaggeration. They've been thinking about it for a long time, and that's when it comes together. That's when so they practice it. That's it. That's when they're doing their songs. You don't have to remember what it was. No. Yeah. No, I don't know at all. I don't know at all. And I don't know if it was anything momentous or if it was ever used. Whether they were recorded Absolutely. Absolutely. You may have seen the only performance of that song. It's, I may have done. I may have done. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. I have three drumsticks by, uh, from the drummer from Queen from that night, which yeah, I found. Roger Taylor. Yeah, Roger Taylor, which I found in a suitcase last week. And I have on my desk. So you recognised their potential at that point? In well, you, you, they, were, they were on old grey whistle test already and they may have done Top of the Pops. So I knew, they were, and when you make a 1,500-seater, mm. you're well on your way. Yes. And you're not doing arenas, but, you know, you are, you're either on the step up or the step back. Mm. And, and the, they were definitely going places. And there I was, I'd, I'd done the getting, I put me a fur coat back on and me clogs, just in me clogs. And they went, right, Michael, tonight we need you to go up to the upper circle and um, you've got to be a bouncer. So I'm 16. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 16. You must I, have looked terrifying. I was terrifying. I'm 16 <laughs> and I'm five foot four. I grew another three inches while at drama school, but uh, I was five foot four in me granny puff sleeves and me clogs. And I'm a bouncer on the top floor, and lo and behold, it got very excitable up there, and a couple of huge blokes got up and started dancing in the aisles. And I had to go in and say, excuse me, please, can you sit down? And they went, fuck off. And I went, absolutely. <laughs> and I went back and stood in the back. And that was my experience as a bouncer. But during the next six months, I was a bouncer in many areas of that theatre, for the Bay City Rollers, uh, the Faces. I was always on security somewhere after we'd done the get-in, and then we'd go back to the get-out. And I saw all sorts of people. Uriah Heep, uh, and then Russ Conway, or um, who was the woman that used to sing Walk On By? Walk On By. Dionne Warwick. Dionne Warwick. But you name them, they came round. Everybody came round. Don McLean with American Pie. Mm. Neil Sedaka 
It was extraordinary, the people that came. Steel Ice Band, marvellous. Right. Which yeah, year would this have been? Second, that would have been 74 to 75. November the 2nd was the Queen concert. 76, I went to... Did you? Yes. Did you? Do, well, you know, the, the, the... I would have missed Queen. Oh, yeah, you would have missed... Well, they would have come back. And Christmas 75 was Bohemian Rhapsody. Ah, and yeah, by that time, they were onto the Wembley Arena or the mm. conference or whatever it is. Yes. So, but there, six months, I was there and I saw everybody. And when it wasn't that, it was the Royal Ballet, the Scottish National Ballet, the Welsh National Opera, the English National Opera, the Scottish National Opera as well. And... Um, uh, very occasionally you'd have a play because you'd go to the Oxford Playhouse instead. Mm. Um, Which is just round the back. Absolutely. The we used to drink in the Gloucester Arms, all of us. So I saw everybody, including when we did do a play, we did a world premiere of a play called Ardell starring Vincent Price and Coral Brown. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the last things I did before I went off. And Panto was Anita Harris in Peter Pan or Dana oh. in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, it was fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, but it was. Why, why did you ever leave? Oh, I tell you, I tell you. I left because they closed the theatre down in order to refurbish it. So I moved to the King's Theatre in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. And I did three months there. Mm. And then it was time to go to drama school. I got into drama school. So those three months were even more extraordinary. The Edinburgh Festival Opera Society kick off over the Edinburgh Festival, and we had Sir Geraint Evans directing The Marriage of Figaro with Dietrich Fischer-Descau, Ileana uh, Kotrobas, Hans-Werner Henser, yeah, uh, uh, who I had never heard of, of course, but I was there, and Geraint Evans was going, will you get out of the way, please? I've got to direct from here. I said, well, I've just got to do the seating, sir. And, uh, and, well, you know, and they were all extraordinary. Mm. And then they went into repertoire and the Royal Ballet Touring division came in and next you know I'm sweeping the stage before the Nutcracker which for some reason they chose to do because it must have been spectacular uh, in the middle of summer and someone goes excuse me pretty you've got to get out of the way pretty oh, thank you very much I turned around and it was Nureyev you know and so you, you were having leading lights come to play the Edinburgh Festival wow. extraordinary he was charming and he was so nice and I chatted to him quite a bit and so... Well, he thought you were pretty. He thought I was pretty. And I had a Dirk Bogard T-shirt on with studs, little diamonds, where he, you know, he had like an eel on. Mm. Anyway, so this was an extraordinary time mm. and hilarious and really was, the world was my oyster. Mm. And uh, God, you must have been fit. What? Get in, Incredibly get out. Get, get, in, in, get out and all-nighters, doing all-nighters, or at least working till 3 or 4 a.m. getting yes. the stuff out, especially the theatre shows, especially the, the ballet shows and everything coming off bars, hanging bars and weights and counterweights in the flies. And, and you know, saw the most extraordinary things. And I fell in love repeatedly with ballet dancers oh. from a distance, <laughs> you know, because they were all so extraordinary. And, you know, the first time it happened to me at the New Theatre Oxford... Uh, nine o'clock, they were in doing their exercises, doing work at the bar, and they rehearsed all day until 5.30, and then they did a show, and they did that every day. And sometimes it didn't look as though they were eating much food and smoking a lot. Mm. But it was an incredible... It's not, you know, it's, a, it was an, it's an athletic pastime. Yes. It's definitely athleticism, and they are extraordinary, incredibly strong. Um, and a, a tough, tough life, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dancing is, without a doubt, yeah. uh, you have to be completely dedicated. Absolutely. You can sort of pick up acting and do it and then, yes. then go to the pub. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, yeah, yeah. you know, you can't do that with dancing no. or opera. No. And we would have had a theatrical equivalent at one point. We'd have gone into rep for years mm-hmm. and then come into, the, into London, mm-hmm. I think. I suppose... Being of similar age, we both remember those old actors when we were younger. Yes. Who had spent their entire life doing yes. that. And, the, and basically their body was a highly tuned instrument. Yes. Where they could do the most extraordinary things. And, to my, and to my shame, although I never participated in it, they were considered obsolete. Yes. They were slightly ridiculed. That's right. When I moved to London to go to drama school, the first place I went to, uh, because one of the guys on the crew at Oxford had moved to it was the Bush Theatre. And the Bush Theatre, uh, the auditorium and the playing, is probably twice the size of this kitchen. Mm. And you all sit around the edges and people play in a space the size of this kitchen. Mm. Um, and people are talking to each other for the first time. And they're talking in a language that is not dissimilar to how you would be talking if we were making supper in here. You know, there's nothing theatrical about it. And it was in response to a dynasty of acting, if you like, or an, an era of acting that had found itself without an audience mm. and without any sense of reality. Yes. And we were going into reality. Mm. And then you had a new wave of young director going to the major institutions and going, you're not really serious. Act- you're going to act like that, are you? Mm. you know? But this stagehand, this stagehand pocket oh. of time, again, uh, you know, a very exciting, all this entertainment doing what the hell you like, and really being in the rear guard, really, of prog rock. Yes. Uh, the prog rock years, which seemed to be very sort of pioneering. Mm. Middle-class pioneering. <laughs> <laughs> but, We're going to take that glorious time of you uh, working backstage. I say, yeah, especially me with a broom and Nureyev's arm around my shoulder. Oh, yes. Very, very good. Oh, very good. you pretty thing. Hello, pretty. Hello, pretty. Hello, pretty. That's very it. happy. So that's it. So we're left with one other thing that we need to Okay, do. is that it? Okay, right. Okay, well, actually, then, you know, it's another little golden orchid out of the dung heap. Yes. Uh, later on, uh, it's all going very well. 1987. I've just finished playing Pier Gint for the Cambridge Theatre Company. I've been around the country, and it's gone quite well. Not brilliantly, but it's gone quite well. Then I'm at the Royal Court and I'm doing a play called Built on Sand by a writer called Daniel Mornin. Uh, it's great. It's theatre upstairs. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of very good actors in it. We're doing some very worthy stuff. Very, very worthy stuff. So on the whole, the outlook is gruelling for the future of the country because that's the kind of theatre we're in. <laughs> Whether it was gruelling or not is immaterial. That's where we are. And, uh, you know, there's no hope for any of us, but we're going to fight on, brothers and sisters. And then weirdly... One evening on a Saturday night, you know, these people uh, come in, they're all watching it, and they're a bit hot, and they start sitting on the stairs. And then one of them comes down the side of the stairs and sits very, very close to the stage and sort of leans on the stage and has a look and all like that. And uh, and I said, well, there you go. That's what we do here in London. That's that's okay, fair enough. Uh, End of show, end of thing, didn't hear anything. Monday morning, I get a phone call and said, two people came in and saw you in a show last night, on Saturday night. And they'd be really interested in you just screen testing for their film. So, yeah, okay. So I went along to the Cadogan Hotel and there were these two Italians. Uh, One was called Fiorella Infascelli. There were three, in fact, Fiorella Infascelli, another chap called Vanni Ricottini, and another one called Adriana Apra. And they were doing a film called The Mask, or La Mascara. And they said, look, just, just do an audition. Do whatever you like. 
And uh, I was a bit freaked out because we'd had a major party, rap party for finishing the show. I was a bit fragile. But anyway, I did what I had to do. And they went, okay, great. Thank you very much indeed. And then that afternoon, I got a phone call saying, look, they'd like you to play the lead in this film in Rome. And I said, but look, I, I'm in the running for another play at the Royal Court Theatre upstairs. And this is about King's Cross. And, I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in with a shout, and I think I really should do this show. Mm. And they said, look, I tell you what, you can agree to take that play if they offer it to you, but just go out on Friday. Go out. So I went out on Friday. Vanni Ricottini met me at the airport. We had an espresso, which I hadn't had ever before, an espresso you know, the thing is, yes, we must have a little thing. And then we got in a tiny little Fiat and bombed at X hundred miles an hour up the motorway to Puerto Ercole, which is where Caravaggio eventually died on the beach in Tuscany. And we stayed in a private house on a hill overlooking the entire bay. And he said, and this is who you're going to be working with. And it was a very promising young actress called Helena Bonham Carter, suddenly materialised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we got back in the Fiat and went down to the Puerto Ecole, to the, the most fantastic restaurant in town, and had a most fantastic evening with wine. And it was my birthday. It was my 30th birthday. And they brought sort of a huge bowl with 31 different kinds of Italian ice cream and a candle in the middle and welcome. And the next day we went back up to the house. We stayed in the house and we rehearsed the script. And then we went for fittings. And we went back home a month later flew out to Rome, and I had my own apartment given to me in the middle of Rome, in the middle of Rome. And Helena was in the Campo di Fiori, which is the, the flower market nearby in some 17th century apartment as well. She'd just done one project before, which was, oh, Rome with a View. Yes. And everybody knew her in Rome, knew her. And also she'd done uh, Lady Jane Grey, the film, I think. And I was in this artist's studio. They'd gone away for the summer, and every day... They would go, right, this week we're going to La Caprarola. La Caprarola is the most extraordinary prince's palace. And we filmed in the prince's palace with a circus troupe who were the Fratelli Colombaioni, the Colombaioni brothers, really, who were a family circus. And they came, and we were all in restoration costume again. And we had this fantastic time. And then the next week, we go to the Lago de Bolsena, Lake Bolsena. And we get in a ferry and go out to the island in the middle of the lake, which was owned by one of the last remaining princes of Italy, where uh, we ate organic food from his garden <laughs> and did more prancing around in restoration gear. And uh, extraordinary. And then we went back to Rome to studio. We, we were doing something extraordinary every day for about eight weeks. Wow. Um, Italian style, which meant that on the Monday morning, I go, well, no one's given me a call, but I'm, you know, I'm in the theatre. I'm very, very disciplined. Mm -hmm. So I'd be there at seven o'clock, you know, waiting. But it was Italy. They turned up at one o'clock. It's Monday. Mm. It's Monday. We don't start early on Monday. Mike, Mike. Michael, Michael, Michael. And I had the most, the most unbelievable time. So going from King's Cross, yes. plays about King's Cross, yeah. to... Oh, I bet you regretted giving that up. Oh, that I really play. did. It, it, it preyed on me. And, and literally, they literally, one of my agents actually virtually had to crowbar me onto the plane. Literally, get that, go, <laughs> you will go now. Where's your passport? You, you will idiot. go. Yeah, absolute <laughs> idiot. And I had this extraordinary time. It was my own renaissance for, I think I did three or four months there, eight of which were filming. And then I went to watch all the rushes in Chinichita, which is, you know, the Elstree 
of Rome, which is where all Fellini's films came out of. The studio, it was unbelievable. There was not a thing I couldn't have done during that time. I was a guest of the film community in Rome. And how did the rushes look? The rushes were fantastic. I got completely obsessed with film. That did it for me then. Now, there's nothing else in my life I'd rather do than be in a film. Mm. Because they, that particular year, they made 180 films in the Italian language alone, 1987, for the Italian market. Mm. Didn't hope to export it. And people came in droves to see their films. And France, it's subsidised, but exactly the same. The French film industry is massive, and there has to be an art house cinema in every town. And it's supported. So you have an indigenous film industry, you have this local grown talent. And I was working with people who were third generation, camera, makeup, wigs, costume. They were all, you know, they'd all, granddad had done it, grandma did it, and now I was doing it, sort of thing, you know. And it was just extraordinary. Those rushes were extraordinary because you saw everything you did, not just the finished article. So often we do a show now and we go and watch it and you go, oh, why did they cut that bit where I was quite fine? Well, they cut but you watched everything before, the middle, and after of what you did. And you saw what worked. And you saw what you could use. And you could see how to use the camera. Mm. And what people did. You got an understanding of actually what people did. Oh, you're the sound man. Are you going to put one of these on me? No, then you really understand. And they brought with them all sorts of stories because Robert De Niro was in the studio next door doing Once Upon a Time in In New New York. York. Once upon a time in New York. And they told me stories with an Italian crew of his extraordinary sort of obsessive dedication, the like of which we don't possess. We're a a community of actors who uh, take their craft extremely seriously, put the cigarette out in the fire bucket and go on stage and do the show. And you'll have done all your preparation and all your fretting and working out in the privacy of your own bedroom or Mm. in the bathroom at home. Mm -hmm. Whereas Americans are out there they do it in full view of everybody and they take it much further and are shameless in the, the amount of dedication, some of which is bonkers. <laughs> some of which is bonkers. And, you, you know, it's unacceptable. But other stuff is extraordinary yeah. and that's why they have supernaturalism mm. in their films. Mm. You know. But the Italians had an extraordinary... It was, if you like, Italian film was a saving grace of their culture after the Second World War. Yes. With De Sica coming in and then Fellini. You had people that produced art in every town and city across the way simultaneously on a Friday night. Mm. And, it was, and it was seen as a point of view, seen with so much love. They're very open-hearted in their expression. So it is about love and it's about excess. And in a way, it's a Mediterranean country that feels tropical. It's a bit like a return to Singapore where everything blossoms, everything grows, and everything is in technicolour. Yes. And it really is a colour, the like of which we couldn't reproduce at Denham Studios no. in the 50s and 60s. No. We had something else. We still had language, even in film. But they had spectacle. Mm. And, and often had... using people from the facilities. Oh, so the Fellini's. Lots of extras. Absolutely, Fellini's. You just say, count to ten, and we'll dub it in later. Yeah. You know. You say eight, you say six. And, you know, when I was in the film of Hamlet, starring Mel Gibson, uh, Franco Zeffirelli was the director. And it was much the same. You could imagine, if he was in his own environment, how what extraordinary force he would have been. But he was constricted by 
the style of English Anglo-American storytelling. Yes. He still did a great job and he's still extraordinary. He's still uh, Franco Zeffirelli and you can't touch him for it. You know, he's, he's okay. extraordinary. But he would think nothing of being an, in a banqueting scene and going, shut fuck up. Everybody shut the fuck up. He's like Grand Central fucking station in here. Okay, you laugh, you cry, action. <laughs> That's it. That's it. But in Perfect. Italy, that would have been, you know, an absolute whirlwind of stuff. And yeah, everybody yes. would have got it. And they would have laughed and cried big time. Yeah, yeah. It would have been remarkable. So that was extraordinary. Oh, it, it that, sounds absolutely yeah, yeah. amazing. That, that really was extraordinary. And I found it, it is funny when you find yourself in completely normal situations. A yeah, life yeah. that you think, this is my life. Yeah. This is going to carry on. And it's, then you find that actually yeah. suddenly... It twists like that. Yes. You're, you're suddenly somewhere else and you can't believe you're there. Yeah, absolutely. And that changed everything for me. And I tried to employ as much as I could in English projects. And you do to a certain extent. And it did inform everything. And it was such a shame to return to, to my idea of normality in England afterwards. And I did fall in love with Italy. And when I went back, each time I went back, I went back every year for three years. And I nearly came close to getting a couple of other, other shows out there. Um, but it was never the same because I was never a guest of the Italian film industry like no. I was at that time. So that really was a golden moment. And I, a little while later, about two to three years later, I did a screen test in Covent Garden for The Life of Michelangelo, a mini-series for American television filmed in Rome. I'm not right for it. Or the best. Anyway, I get a phone call about a month later. I'd forgotten all about it. It's one of those things you go, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, they go, they'd like you to fly out. I can fly out very good. I got someone looking like Burt Lancaster meets me at the airport in a limousine and goes, here's $200 spending money. Let's go. You go to the best hotel in Rome. You get put up. The next morning you go and say, look, we don't know if you've got the part for certain, but it's looking like it. <laughs> uh, here are your costumes. 13 costumes right up. And uh, at three o'clock this afternoon, we'd like to go for a broken nose fitting, please. And at five o'clock, we're going to go for a curly wig fitting. Michelangelo's hair. Very good. This is exciting. You're back in Chinichita. You've got to do one formality. You've, you've learned the scenes that we sent you, right? You've learned those speeches. You've got to do them for the director who's flying in from Los Angeles today, right? This guy came, he, I could, coming towards me, I could see him going, not this kid, not this one. Oh, no. And uh, anyway, he said, hi, how you doing? So it's fine. He said, hi, a bit of jet legs? Sure. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so I'm ready, uh, if you'd like to see me do anything, sure, why don't you give it a go? Mm. And so I stand on the set and I've got my little toga on or my little loincloth, whatever it is, and I'm going, getting very passionate about sculpture and I'm trying to make my hands as big as possible, they're not big hands, and you know, and he went, well, yeah, well, yeah, you had that down, didn't you? Oh, no. And then he went, he went, it's great to see you, Mike. And he shook my hand and over my shoulder he went, cancel the appointments. And it's one of those things where you go, I think he's just said cancel the appointments, but I think I've still got the part. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like the part of you, I think it's okay. And they took me back and they said, I said, wait a minute, I just as I was getting the car, I've just been fired, haven't I? I haven't got the part. They went, no, Michael, it's not like that at all. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Have a nice evening. Tell you where it. And they stood there and waved, waved me off, clearly feeling quite compassionate or sorry oh, for me. You, yeah. and, there, and that was it. And I had a kip. And when I woke up, I went, oh, my God, I haven't got the part. This is terrible. Mm. And that was it. And that was the end of Italy for certain after that. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Oh uh, well, the glorious yeah, part yeah. of Italy. The though. glorious part was amazing. We are going to put that. Oh. We're going to put that in the time capsule. Yeah, yeah. Look, look at that any time <laughs> you like. So when you did the Crown, yes, did you happen to do any scenes with Helen and Bonagata? I didn't, but I saw her in the dressing room. I oh, saw her. Nice. I saw her on the makeup truck, and uh, and she, you know, she's like a juggernaut. She's extraordinary. It's amazing. And and she is very self possessed. She is generating that work herself. It never fell in her lap. Some things do on the strength of her achievements, but she is forever making sure that she is up for consideration. And also reinventing herself Completely. over and over Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. There we are. So, Michael, Look, uh, thank you so thank much. You. It's really, really, fun really good fun to talk Absolutely. to you. Absolutely, likewise. And we're going to seal up the time capsule, and there you are. There it is. It's in. Do what you like with it. A little troubling that nothing's happened since 1987, but apart from that, uh, very good. You know, that's all right. That's, there you go. That's nothing. Yeah, good. Thank you. Cheers. All right, cheers. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Michael Maloney. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you discover the opportunity along the way, please do rate the show and leave a review. Thanks. And if you want to follow us, we're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule or at MyPCPod or at Fenton Stevens. The producer of this podcast was John Fenton Stevens and the music was by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Hope to see you again soon. Now, where did I leave my knitting? Oh, there it is, hanging on my chest. Only I'll just take that out. Oh, ah. Oh, oh, that stings. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.